I'm Sienna, the kid. I'm Sarah, the mom. Whether you're a young person wanting to learn more about these issues or their parent wanting to find ways to connect, we want you to join us as we tackle some important subjects. If you can't have these conversations in your household yet, we hope to help by having them here. Welcome to Queer Kids Straight Mom. Let's talk. Hi, everybody. Um, today, I'm very excited to introduce you to a guest who is going to be talking to us about her campaign and her plans to be in the Montana State Legislature. Uh, this is Zoe Zephyr. Zoe, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Zoe Zephyr. I live in Missoula, Montana, and I am the representative-elect for the 100th House District in the Montana State Legislature. And I will be the first trans woman to hold public office in the state of Montana. Which is so cool. I'm so excited <laughs> for you. That's amazing. Um, very exciting. And thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for making time for this. This is great. Okay. So I guess just to start us off, could you maybe give a little bit of background on why you decided to run in House District 100? So House District 100, why there instead of elsewhere? It was an easy decision because... It's where I live. It's where I've been living. And it's it's the district that I bust through every day on my way to work. I walk through on the weekends. I go to park cleanups. It meant that when I was knocking doors, I was knocking doors of friends and neighbors. And I was never more than one to two people removed uh, from someone who, uh, who I knew in that district. Uh, so that decision was an easy decision. In terms of why did I run at all? I had been working since early 2020 on activism behind the scenes, helping people file human rights claims, uh, helping people try to navigate systems if they were bullied in school. What does that mean? And what happens if an administrator says, well, we did the process and the process says everything's fine. How do you go to them and evaluate whether that process is just and equitable. And then I started doing de-escalation work at various protests, um, tracking armed counter-protesters to make sure that they weren't going to attack um, organizers and began working with the city of Missoula on human rights legislation. And all of that started to snowball into the 2021 legislature in Montana, where a slew of anti-trans and anti-LGBTQ bills were being brought forward. And because of the work I had done in the past, I was asked to come in and uh, testify and share my experience, which I did specifically on uh, HB 112, which was a bill banning trans women and girls from competing in sports in alignment with their gender identity. And I testified before the judiciary committees, both House and Senate. I met with the governor's office alongside 10 and 12 year old trans kids who pleaded for the right to play sports with their friends. And I remember those conversations, you could feel that many of the folks on the committees and in the governor's office did not want to hear the things that trans people were saying about our existence. And when those bills went before the floor, and I watched Republicans lambast. Uh, trans people, um, by and large, or and when I watched Democrats and some Republicans uh, speak up in defense of trans people, 
it, it felt like, okay, I'm so glad they're in there supporting us, but it's a layer removed. It's one order removed. Even when LG and B people were speaking about trans people, it was one layer removed from the lived experience of what it means to be a trans person on these issues. And I watched some of those bills pass by one vote. And I remember thinking to myself in that moment, I bet I could change one heart if I were in that room. I bet I could be the difference there. And so I met with my senator at the time and I said, is this the place to be if I want to make a difference? And he said, not only is it the place to be, it is the place you can do the most good. And I went, okay, here's the battleground. I'm going to do what I can. He said, have a hundred cups of coffee with people, get back to me. And I booked a hundred cups of coffee with every politician in the state I could think of. And off I went. Yeah, I I would imagine you don't remember, but um, I, I also was there testifying against HB 112. And I remember listening to you talk and I was so impressed and just like the level of grace it takes to go up in front of people or, you know, on Zoom or whatever, who are treating you like complete garbage and, you know, talk compassionately and gracefully and articulately when all you want to be doing is just screaming at them. Like, why do you, why are you treating people like this? I was just really amazed by, by what you said. So. Thank you. And thank you for your testimony as well. Um, I know if you're testifying, you know, that some of that is an attempt to sway moderates, um, but you never know how effective that is. But part of it as well is you are speaking into the public record trans existence. Mm -hmm. And you're also speaking to trans youth across the state who reached out to me afterwards and said, thank you. Like I was too, I'm 12, I'm 14, and I'm too scared to out myself in this kind of way. And to be able to speak passionately um, for those uh, in the sort of across the state of Montana who weren't there, it's important. And then secondly, I do think it's different outside the room versus inside the room, but I genuinely believe that there are many people in the legislature who came to their opinions genuinely, believe that they hold nuanced opinions, even if they're voting wrong on this 100% of the time, they believe they have nuanced opinions and they're open to change if you discuss it with them. And many of them have never met a trans woman or hadn't at least. Uh, and they certainly hadn't worked with one day in, day out. And I, I, I wouldn't have run for office if I didn't believe that I could make a difference by being in there. Yeah, absolutely. You're going to have to indulge me for a minute as I, as I take off my queer youth hat for a second and put on my political science hat, because I took a campaign management class last semester and it was very interesting. And so I'm just, I just have a couple of questions that I'd like to ask you from the, the running a campaign side. Um, I love I think, this. <laughs> I think it's really interesting. Um, so based on my, my research earlier this afternoon, um, you had a primary in June. Is that right? I did have a primary in June. Uh, it was slated to be one of the state's more competitive primaries, and I wound up winning, I think, by 22 points. Yeah, um, yeah, because I did see in the results that it was it was like reasonably close, um, not, you know, one person was a clear choice. And so I was just kind of curious about how, um, why you think you ended up pulling ahead. Yeah, I think there's a couple of reasons. Some of the things that contributed to my win there were one, knocking doors. Uh, in the primary, I knocked over 6,000 doors 
in a voting pool that was, you know, I think 3000 votes wound up being cast, something like that. Okay. Wow. And so it was, uh, I knocked every door that we had put as a likely person at least twice, some of them three times. And that makes a difference. I knocked, so you have 150 seats between hundred house and 50 Senate Dems weren't in every one of them, but in total, I knocked over 10% of all doors knocked by Democrats in Montana, in the Montana primary. Wow. That's and phenomenal. That makes a difference. Um, and that's not a knock on Democrats who were out knocking doors. I just, I went hard and I went hard and I was able to go that hard because I also had a huge team because of the community work I had done and uh, continue to do. And because of the sort of history making aspect of it, queer organizers across the community rallied. And while many people running primaries had two to three people helping them, I had 30 um, who were, were out on the doors with me. And that makes a difference. And then I think in a community like Missoula, being a longtime member of that community and being a young woman running for office, there were a lot of people who were excited for that. They wanted to see young people in office. They wanted to see women in office. They wanted to see LGBT representation in office. And there were a lot of people who celebrated that as the sort of initial welcoming. And then were like, but let's talk policy. And when they saw that I had all of that policy knowledge on top of the it would be better to see more women um, and more represent more equitable representation in office. When they saw those two things together, I think it it clicked for a lot of people that there was uh, that I was the candidate uh, for them. Yeah, I guess um, primaries can be a little bit watered down on the policy front, um, but but like given that, what what were you? What were the issues that you noticed that people were most concerned about in the primary? Housing. Uh, 100% housing in Montana. It was, you know, 6,000 doors. And I'm, I think, you know, 5,980 of them probably talked housing. Um, it's the issue and it's the issue whether or not you're renting, whether there were homeowners snitching on Airbnbs that had taken away the sense of community in their neighborhoods, um, whether it was homeowners who are or renters who were trying to get into homes, homeowners who were trying to get into bigger homes so they could start families, um, or people who were tired living on fixed income and couldn't afford uh, their home payments or property taxes. And across the sort of longitudinal array of what housing issues look like in Montana, wherever people were, they were talking about it. From there, we trickled into conversations about, you know, solar and, you know, stream access and whether or not Missoula should be building up or out or both. Um, and questions of how clean energy like solar localizes economies. And on top of those things, Missoula is a smart city. They were also talking about the national flashpoints, the Dobbs decision, uh, trans attacks, LGBT attacks. They were very aware of national conversations around those and wanted to talk. So. Okay. Um, so then you won your primary, which is exciting. And um, after that, what was, um, how did your strategy shift and what was your kind of focus? So given the makeup of my district, which is the bluest district in the state, I was able to pull back a little bit on what I did. 
um, to uh, focus more on talking with orgs about policy, still knocked a little bit of doors, um, but did not push nearly as hard as I did in the primary. And then also, you know, that primary window is mid, mid-June mid to uh, no, mid-November or early November. And at the beginning of August, I had a vaginoplasty. And so I was out of commission from the beginning of August till like the week before the election. Wow. Um, and so, and like medically forbidden from knocking doors for like two and a half months. Um, and so how that shifts the strategy of, are you making phone calls? Are you going to making sure that, okay, if the union hosts an event at a park, maybe you show up there because that's where the community is going to be. That's where people who, you know, maybe thought, well, you beat a union person in the primary. Do you actually care about unions? Can I go to that event and talk to them there? And so, because then I can stand and lean against a tree as opposed to knocking, uh, knocking doors, uh, all day. And that shifted the strategy there, um, as well. So. Yeah, no kid. That is a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a year. <laughs> I'm so impressed right now. I, I can't even imagine like surgery. Oh, I'm still in a campaign. <laughs> still just going. <laughs> yeah. Wow. All right. So then moving on to kind of looking ahead, um, what are your kind of main goals? You've talked a little bit about, you know, just introducing people to a transgender person, um, but are there other, other kind of focuses you have or? Yeah. You know, I think I talk about trans issues, that it's like a lot of that is defense, Mm -hmm. um, is understanding that like, how do you get a house that is you know, hundred people and it's 68 Republicans, 32 Democrats. How do you get 19 of those Republicans to understand that these issues aren't where they should be focusing their attention and that our communities don't want it. Their, their party base doesn't want it. Can I convince 19 of them? Can I convince four in the judiciary? Those conversations are, are part of the work, uh, obviously, uh, and also making sure that I'm bringing forward, forward policies that reflect the needs of my community and shift the conversations both locally and nationally. You know, when someone says, you know, is is calling LGBT people groomers or pedophiles um, and saying that, you know, they're a danger to children and we shouldn't have drag brunches or whatever, whatever, you know, lie that they're spreading about uh, uh, queer folks. How do I shift and say, hey, actually, here are our real concerns is, People can kill us and use our transness as a defense in court. Or did you know that in Montana, it's legal to not let a trans person talk? We think we're a danger to kid, kids and you're, and you're putting that rhetoric sort of, you're not saying we are, but you're thinly veiling it. Let's pull that back and say, do you think I should be able to start a family? That's the conversation I want to have. Not should drag queens be able to teach kids how to read? you're obfuscating the issue here. And if you want to talk family, let's talk about it in a way that's very real and directly impacts uh, trans people in Montana. Beyond that, you know, I think it comes to bringing, every legislator comes in with various lived experiences. I'm a union worker. I'm a renter. I'm a queer woman. I'm young. My grandparents were farmers. All of those little intersections of identity 
I bring them into the legislature and propose policies built off of them and the needs of my community as they told me. And so how can I go in and propose landlord-tenant revisions or propose property tax revisions and say, hey, let's talk about this from this framework. Let's make sure we're considering the lives of renters as we do this. And you know, in a legislature that has very few renters and quite a bit of landlords, and how do you make sure that you are standing up for communities of need through the lens of your lived experiences? And I think that's the key when it comes to drafting legislation that you can feel proud of uh, and stand behind with authority and authenticity. Yeah, that's such a great point. I mean, because we really do have quite a homogenous legislature and it when you're thinking about, okay, well, what does Montana actually look like? It's not the most diverse state, but there's certainly a lot of diversity in Montana. And it's so important to make sure that all of those different identities are reflected and the ways that different identities interact are reflected. And I'm just not sure that's something a lot of people who are you know privileged enough to have never really had to consider how their identities reflect really understand necessarily. So that I think that's a really good point. Yeah. And, and then you... You take that and you have to, you have to also then, this is part of how to, you know, how you have to be successful in a place like the legislature, but you have to then take those experiences, come to someone who is very at odds with you and understand that they're coming with their lived experiences. How do you talk to, you know, 65-year-old middle-class white woman uh, who, you know, had a really hard childhood? you know, whose family did not support her for a variety of reasons and who believes with all her heart that she bootstrapped her way to the top. How do you engage that, understand that she's coming from a place of genuineness and also talk about the way in which people who are under 30 today are really being squeezed by the housing market? And what does it look like to make sure that we are giving them opportunities? Why is childcare important for the state of Montana? Why are we fighting so hard for that? And and why is that something that the government should fund? And figuring out how to meet people in those conversations, that's what will determine how successful we all are in the legislature, yep. especially those yep. of us in the minority. So, um, Moving on, I guess, a little bit more to focus on um, your queer identity. So when you were deciding to become a Democratic candidate, did you feel like the party was behind you or did you feel like there was a little bit of not even overt, like we don't want a trans candidate, but just even an element of like, well, is a trans candidate going to be able to win? Did you experience any of that? I think I circumvented that before I announced my candidacy. Okay. I I thought I was going to have to kick down a hundred doors to get in. And what turned out to be the case is I kicked in about a half dozen. And if you kicked in the right doors, they'll open the others. And so when I had been working with members of city council on policy in Missoula, and they knew, city council knew that I had the policy chops and the mayor knew I had the policy chops. And then I could meet with a democratic socialist from Missoula who knew then after our conversation, I had the progressive chops and a couple others. I was able to talk with them and then they were able to, when I reached out to other people say, you should meet with Zoe. She knows what she's doing. She's, I think she's got this. 
And that meant that when I launched my campaign, I had nearly every member of city council, all three county commissioners, the mayor, and a handful of legislators. And that, I think if I hadn't done that beforehand, to your point, I do think there would have been a question of, is she running on identity? Is that all she is? And I think I circumvented that. And then I think circumventing that initially with the endorsements also made it easier to get around that on the doors because some people did want to know, like, is it, are you, is this all you're going to fight for? And it's, and to me getting to say, no, this is the fire that will keep me going through the legislature. That's true. But here's the litany of issues I care about. And I, here's how I can talk about them in nuanced ways. Um, That's what matters in the end. Absolutely. Um, So then did you, um, I guess, to what degree did you have to deal with kind of transphobia in, in the media and I don't know, like social media and all that, all, all that stuff. If you've seen anything that I post online about trans issues, you'll see that one of the things I say is by and large, trans people, when you drop below the national rhetoric or the legislative rhetoric, and you really get down to community levels, we are largely supported and loved. People meet us in coffee shops. They're our coworkers. They they see us on the street or at farmer's markets, uh, on hiking trails. And they know that we're just people who live our lives. And those are lives that are full of uh, joy and nuance. And there's not a lot of overt vitriol. It does crop up from time to time, um, as I think any marginalized community member knows. It crops up in big ways sometimes, and it crops up in microaggressions. But by and large, um, the support is there. And for me, on those 6,000 doors, I had two conversations that were bad. And the conversations were not angry. They were questions that people had about a couple specific issues who felt very strongly. And I wound up saying, hey, I'm probably not the candidate for you. If if you're this upset about trans issues, don't be the person. Like, I'm not going to, we could talk about issues in a lot of different ways, but, you know, a question of uh, do I deserve life-saving medication is not a thing that I really want to um, have an open dialogue with you on. Um, that was there. Um, in the media, Missoula's media market would be, you'd have to be very stupid to run a negative ad, let alone a negative ad on an LGBT person. That would just be a waste of money. And I I saw zero attack ads against me. And in fact, when it came to the general election, my opponent messaged me and was like, I'm not going to say anything negative about you whatsoever. And in fact, if you win, I think that I think it's going to be an exciting thing for the state. And then we met after the general election to have a debrief about what we'd heard on the doors and conversations about what our constituents broadly will want. Online, there's going to be some. There's always some. But uh, people can be mean online and cheers to them. Um, it doesn't really impact me. Yeah, that's actually really cool about your opponent. Um, That's a level of cooperation that I don't think I've ever seen in any of the races I've been involved in. So congratulations. That's nice to hear. (laughs) Thank you. It was, it felt, it felt like the way things should be when he said, I lost this election. I'm excited to see what you can do. And I was like, tell me what you heard, because I didn't, get to talk to, you know, as many Republicans as you did. I talked to a handful. I didn't get to talk to as many as you did. What were they talking about? 
What were the things they cared about? What were the things they didn't? And is there a way I can think about the issues that are important to me and to my community and sort of, can I hear those concerns, find legislation for them without sacrificing your moral compass in some way? And I do think there's opportunity there. And I'm really grateful for that conversation. I I hope the rhetoric, the disparate violent rhetoric drops and more of these types of conversations can happen because they're valuable. Yeah, because I mean, in my campaign management class, one of the things that came up over and over again was, well, it's not a winning strategy to talk to people who are, you know, in your case, strong R voters, because they're not, they're not going to vote for you. That just makes them more likely to go out and vote against you just because they're like, oh, there's a race there, which I suppose, sure, from a, from a campaigning standpoint makes sense, but it's not good from a governing standpoint. (laughs) It's exactly. And, you know, um, that's Bad advice as far as I'm concerned. You know, if you're in a district of 500,000 or 2 million or something, I don't know, maybe, but like in my community, like I would knock a door thinking it was a a Democrat voter and I'd get uh, a Republican and we'd talk. And I, I think only one Republican voter was like, no, get it, get shoe. I knocked the door of a guy who said, I don't, I don't vote for a single them. I'll tell you, there's one I respect and it's and he named Willis Curdy who won a Senate seat. And he's like, I'm going to vote for your opponent. And I said, that's great. And I said, I want you to know, like, you know what district you're in. It's like, you know that this is Missoula and that it'll likely go 75-25 for the Democrat. I'm going to win this seat. And when I do, I want to take with me to the legislature the things you care about. So if you've got five minutes, tell me what matters to you. And if it's something I think I can move on, um, and be true to myself, then we'll take it. And those conversations, you know, they may lose you, you know, if you're raising re- uh, an awareness of the race, maybe it's bad for a cycle. But I think in the long term, if you want to have a community that is not as fractionated, if that's a word, as ours, <laughs> you need to have those conversations because that's how you move the needle over time. And someone says, you know, I talked to a dem and they didn't slam a door. They came by and they said, here's who I am. Here's what I stand for. Tell me what you care about. That is amazing. We need more of you. (laughs) So many more of you. (laughs) That's very sweet. Um, Well, because I think everyone gets so bogged down and I got to win this race. I got to win this race that you lose that element of, well, I actually want to know what my constituency wants. Yeah. And it's like, you know, you think of not to reveal myself as the leftist I am, but you think of like, uh, you know, capitalism and chasing quarterly profits and like very short-term vision stuff on that. If you're thinking as a Dem, I want to flip this seat, I want to do this and the party saying, I want to invest here and, and whatnot. If you're thinking in terms of one election cycle, maybe you don't run candidates across Montana. Maybe you leave things empty. Maybe, you know, you don't talk to Republicans. But if you're thinking, what do I want Montana to look like in 20 years? Or hell, what do I want my community locally as the micro to look like. Those conversations are, as far as I'm concerned, life or death for community health. So kind of my my wrap-up question here is just what would your advice be to any young queer people who are considering running for office and don't know where to start or a little bit nervous about it? Yeah. So if you are a young person, I say as a 34-year-old young person, um, but if you're a young person thinking, I want to get involved in politics. I want to do X, Y, or Z, and you're not sure what that is yet. I think of a couple things. I think first, 
root yourself in your community. And that can be your queer community locally. It can be just the place, the city you live in, going to different events. Make sure you feel grounded because one, you want to be familiar with your community if you're getting in politics. But two, the way you buffer yourself against the cruelties of the world and some of the cruelties in politics are you have to have those circles of care. Um, You have to like be certain in yourself and who you are. You have to have a support network that will take care of you. You have to have community that you can thrive in. And as you build that, you will find the people doing the work and you will look for the places that need help. And if you have the capacity to step into those places, whether that is a protest, whether it's speaking up at a coffee shop or bar when someone says something inappropriate, um, whether it's at your job, Um, on a committee or subcommittee, find those places, speak up, and then make note of the people who have been here before you, both other LGBT people and the people in the offices you want to hold who have been in before you. And reach out to them for advice and find the people who will help open the door. And once that door is open, do not be afraid to step through it confidently because your voices matter and we belong in these rooms. Right. Thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. That was all the questions I have. Um, but is there anything else you, you want to say? Or This was really lovely. I'm so happy I got to, to chat with y'all. Um, I'm sorry we didn't get to talk more like deep policy stuff. And I'm sorry, Sarah, that we didn't get a parental side of things because I know I know a lot of what's coming forward right now are bans on uh, health care for trans youth. And questions of what does it mean to have, you know, education around these issues for people who are under 18 um, or drag queens teaching kids how to read. Like those issues are at the core of what's happening and are important to parents. And I hope hope you're staying abreast of them and uh, feel free to reach out if you. I was just going to say, we would love to chat again. Maybe I know you'll be really busy during this session, but at some point I would love to check in again. If you're willing to talk to us again, absolutely. address some of those. Great. Thank Thank you you so so much. much. (laughs) Thanks y'all. You take care. Have a good day. Bye. All right. Well, thanks so much, everybody, for joining us. And if you have any comments that you would like to share, please feel free to reach out on our social media. And next week, we are very excited. We're going to be talking about pronouns, which is a topic I'm very passionate about and a topic that apparently older generations struggle with a little bit. What Sienna is trying to say is... It is an issue that a lot of parents just, it's an adjustment. We all learned things in grammar class that Sienna and their cohort roll their eyes at, but that are hard for us sometimes to overcome. Okay, yes. Um, So that should be a really interesting conversation. And if you have any questions that you would like answered, either as a kid trying to figure out how to deal with explaining some of these things to your parents or your relatives, or as a parent trying to figure out how to navigate a world that you find difficult to navigate, um, absolutely, again, reach out on social media and we would love to hear from you and answer your questions on the podcast. So thanks. Hope everybody has a great holiday and a happy new year and we'll catch you next time. All right. If you would like to hear more from us, follow us on Instagram at queerkid.straightmom. 
Facebook at Queer Kid, Straight Mom, Twitter at Queer Kid, Straight Mom, that's straight, that's spelled S-T-R-8. And if you would like to support us so that we can keep bringing you content like this, consider donating to us on Patreon at Queer Kid, Straight Mom. And if you are enjoying our podcast, please rate, review, and follow us on your preferred podcasting platform.